Don't know it. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 203. Jason Lindgren is with me as always. And we have a new guest today, Andy Kaufman. And uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things, bacteria, what makes people sick, the idea of detoxification, all kinds of things like this. And then an hour or two, we're going to open up and address some maybe more immediate concerns. If you follow what I'm saying, welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. And it's a fine good morning here in Louisiana. So we're starting off at square one. We had quite a lead going. Uh, now we're going to have to catch up. But do you have anything for the introduction here that matters? I think just a few reminders that we have the soundtrack up on CD Baby, if anybody is interested. There's a few new t-shirts up on the Teespring shop. The live streams, if anybody's not aware, every Sunday, you and I do a live stream on my Secrets of Saturn channel from 5 to 6 p.m. Central, which is my time, so 6 to 7 Eastern. And that's uh, at the same time we did TFR. And then every Wednesday from 8 to 10 Central, Wayne McCroy and I do a live stream. And sometimes Crow joins us there as well. Right. Okay. Um, there's all the stuff. Shall we continue? Let's move. All right. Welcome, Andy. Thank you. Good morning, guys. It's uh, really an honor to be on your show. Hey, I'm looking forward to this um, as we went over the topics and arranged them carefully uh, so that they could be delivered to as many minds as possible. There's a number of very interesting things here. And if you have followed our work, you might be familiar with some of the naturopath, homeopath, well-trained doctors in many disciplines to include Ayurvedic uh, and maybe Asian or Chinese styles of uh what we call medicine, uh, to include the work that the Germans have done, some really cutting-edge work that was supposed to be announced around how people get sick and viruses and these ideas, but apparently that was never published. But you want to jump right in here? I'll get us started if you do. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I've approached this uh, kind of a, a long strategy. So coming from uh, my background in medicine, I started just noticing that uh, the things that I was trained to do as an allopathic physician were not successful. And so I started uh, investigating that further, um, looking at the research literature, and I started seeing that actually there's uh, quite a bit of mortality and morbidity, which are the medical words for uh, kind of death and destruction that actually are caused by our practice of medicine. And once I realized this and started questioning things, it was kind of like uh, peeling the layers of an onion. I kept going down uh, deeper and deeper and ending up at a very fundamental level, realizing, um, you know, as in many other areas, uh, when you start to investigate truth, that once you get down to the base assumptions that you are working under and question those, and those are actually not true, it's like a house of cards that everything can fall apart. And you know, I see lots of uh, people, like you mentioned, you had several ex excellent guests on your show before talking about um, other orientations of medicine and natural healing. And uh, I listen to a lot of those people, and I, I'm always looking for new information, um, new wisdom. And what I see, though, is that many people have recognized at the higher levels that something is not right with our healthcare system and, and with how uh, we think about uh, disease and health. But they haven't gone down to this fundamental level. Um, and once you see that some of the you know, basic underlying arguments uh, that, that our healthcare system were created on are actually based completely not in the truth, 
then then everything else um, you you look at through different lens. So whereas before I saw you know simply a, a clinical study showing a bad outcome, now I would be looking at that and saying, well, the whole basis for what the healthcare system did to these people is based on fallacy. So looking at the outcome itself uh, makes it uh, a much more dire finding because you see that it's, it's not that they did something that helped some people and, and harmed a few people, but it's that they did something that couldn't have really helped because it wasn't based on how our bodies work. And in the process of doing that, a lot of people were harmed and no one was really helped. So it, it's been uh, you know, quite a, a personal revolution for me going through this process to uh, arrive at these conclusions. And I think uh, you know, to get to that base level, we have to look at the paradigm of healthcare and what it's based upon. Do you want to give your background just so everybody knows right exactly where you're coming from? Because that's probably really important to understand for the listeners just how well-trained you are and what you're looking at and saying, hey, I see problems here. (laughs) Right, sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So um, I I studied uh, molecular biology and chemistry as an undergraduate, and I went on then to uh, become a physician assistant, which is like a a mid-level provider. So I worked uh, directly with physicians. And I took that job uh, actually as a junior faculty member of the medical school in South Carolina, working on the uh, hematology and oncology service. So I was working with uh, cancer patients, uh, bone marrow transplant patients, people with uh, rare blood disorders, very, very sick people. And and that's where I got my real first taste of seeing that, uh, you know, really no one was cured of cancer that I worked with. uh, pretty much everyone died. There was, you know, like one rare cancer that had a very unique treatment that was actually based on vitamin A. And those people got better. But, I, you know, I saw like two people that had that illness uh, in two years and everyone else that got all of the traditional therapies, uh, the bone marrow transplant, chemotherapy, radiation, um, even some immune therapies that were uh, budding at the time, um, you know, everyone died of those people. So then I, I went on, continued my education, went to medical school, earned my MD uh, from the Medical University of South Carolina, and decided to study uh, and specialize in psychiatry. So I went to Duke uh, for my residency there, and then continued my training in upstate New York uh, for a fellowship in forensic psychiatry. So I'm, I'm trained in those specialties, and I continued to uh, work in academic medicine for the earlier part of my career, held several leadership positions, uh, conducted uh, some research, have several published articles and book chapters. And then uh, luckily, I uh, moved out of the academic realm and uh, experienced a lot of uh, kind of negative things there in terms of uh, politics and et cetera. And um, now practicing on my own. And once I really woke up to this truth about about healthcare, I began investigating um, alternatives and looking for what's really going on with our health and our bodies. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll lead us in here. Let's get into the nuts and bolts. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to rephrase that. We'll leave the nuts for the evening news and we'll get into the bolts here. (laughs) There's been a lot of to do about germ theory online. People can do 
just easy searches to see how many people are going in to rethink, to challenge germ theory, and this includes bacteria and viruses. And there's a thing called terrain theory, so why don't you jump in there, Andy, and we'll talk about germ theory, bacteria, and viruses, and whatever the heck it is that is called terrain theory. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, this is such a central thing to understand at this fundamental level, as I was saying before, because the big paradigm of our healthcare system is, is a warfare model, right? We're always, uh, we're fighting against an invader uh, that comes into our body, right? There's a war on cancer. Uh, there's a war on drugs, right? We have this warfare mentality uh, in many areas, but it's central in healthcare. And it's based on germ theory. And so what germ theory is, and which was basically told to me as fact, even though it's called germ theory, you know, it was taught to me in my medical education, but even way before that um, in, in my biological education as fact. And what it says is that Basically, disease is caused by an agent that comes from outside our body and invades and causes that disease. And uh, there, there are some people who think that or have thought historically that this was the cause of all disease. But certainly there's a, a big push in medicine to find an infectious agent for almost every disease possible, including diseases that you would think have nothing to do with infections like uh, autoimmune diseases. So, so this is a very, very central thing. Uh, the basis of all uh, in treatment of infections is based upon germ theory. The thing is that germ theory is not based upon uh, good science. And there was a, a vigorous debate about uh, the origin of life and the origin of disease um, in, the, in the 1800s, mid to late, uh, even into the uh, 20th century. And um, the debate wasn't quite over when Pasteur's um, germ theory was taken up by the mainstream and uh, promoted as the new medical paradigm. And so Pasteur actually didn't even come up with the idea. He basically plagiarized another scientist, Antoine Becham, who was his uh, contemporary, but a much more serious uh, scientist. And, and throughout his career, Pasteur plagiarized uh, and stole several findings and ideas uh, from Becham. Even, even pasteurization was not Pasteur's idea um, originally. So Beauchamp was a, a very brilliant uh, scientist, and he did a, a number of experiments about fermentation. Fermentation was seen as a model of life and of trans transformation of life. So they were thinking about, you know, what makes an organism alive or dead? What's the origin of life? Uh, there was a pre-existing theory of spontaneous generation that essentially the uh, the body of an organism is uh, like kind of like a sterile environment, and it there was a, a spontaneous generation of life into that organism um, that uh, resulted in, in the living being. And uh, Beauchamp did a number of experiments, and one of the uh, early experiments that actually led to the germ theory was where he had uh, several um, flasks of uh, sugar solution that he mixed with uh, different salts, and some of them had air in the container and some of them did not have air. And he looked at uh, the fermentation products uh, of these uh, vessels. And he found that uh, many of them actually didn't ferment, the ones that had no air and the ones that had certain salts that may have um, inhibited growth. But uh, what he learned from this is that the uh, microorganisms that were already discovered to be involved in fermentation actually uh, came from the air. 
So this was kind of a preliminary experiment. And when he discovered they came from the air, then that could mean that germs uh, that cause disease come from the air. Um, I want to just back up a second because I think language is very important to understand um, in this uh, whole realm. And the word germ itself, actually the, the meaning of that is a bud or a shoot. So, so it has a meaning of new life or new growth. And taking that word and turning it into uh, a description or a meaning of a villain, you know, something that invades your body and causes disease is, is quite an inversion uh, of meaning there. And, uh, you know, I think that's, um, I'm not sure where the term originally was coined, but, but it's really not used properly um, in this current paradigm. So, so Beauchamp had this discovery, and then about two years later, uh, Pasteur uh, basically copied this experiment, but he did it in a very sensational way where he loaded up these bottles and went on like a tour of the, the French uh, vineyards and captured air at the different vineyards to show that um, there are different uh, germs in the air at different places that could cause fermentation. And, uh, but it, it basically just replicated Basham's experiment. And then at a meeting later, um, Pasteur gave the results of this and claimed it was his own idea. And when Basham at the end got up to refute and say that he originally um, discovered this, um, Pasteur just ran out of the building and didn't even uh, give him a chance to uh, sort of confront him. We should interject here. We've done a number of episodes talking about fermented foods and how healthful many of them are. The idea being that you're eating something with life in it, uh, like cheese used to be before the idea of pasteurization by Louis Pasteur, we are told. Uh, I get emails from places like Switzerland, all over Europe, all the time saying, we still have cheese that's not been pasteurized, it's living. So really kind of what you're pointing to is what Pasteur was involved in was basically convincing everyone to cook the life out of everything we ingest. Wasn't, wasn't that a big part of it? Absolutely. Well, if the, if the life is what causes disease, then you have to get rid of it. Right. And, th and this is, uh, you know, obviously it's just like antibiotics, right? Look at the meaning of that word, right? We, we, <laughs> it means against life. So we're, we're using it to try to improve our health, but it's against, you know, it's against life. It is it, a big contradiction here in this warfare model. So let's, let's back up a minute and be very clear. Uh, it makes you wonder in World War II uh, if the prefix germ uh, was being somehow mentally manipulated as the Germans invaded everywhere. <laughs> um, but that's a side thought. Um, let's get back to, to uh, the germ theory. And as you pointed out, it's called germ, germ theory. It's a bit like gravity, right? Gravity is a theory based on a theory, and yet it is treated like a law. And you would think something of that much, and I'll make the pun, gravitas, would be proved out to be a law, a solid thing that Absolutely. we can prove. Right. So we're looking at a similar idea here, but let's get back to, to bacteria and viruses is the underlying. And by the way, we still need to. Was that a definition of train theory? If not, we need to make sure we let people know what train theory is. But um, bacteria and viruses. So what's what's the bottom line here? Are they misdescribed? Is what they are and how they affect us misdescribed? Is that the idea? Well, yeah. I mean, in terms of disease, it is. Um, but but I think uh, it's important to mention that um, Beauchamp did additional experiments that basically showed that the microorganisms can come from inside as well. So he did these experiments with uh, decaying uh, dead cats, for example. 
And these organisms were able to undergo putrefaction without any air or outside contamination at all. And what happened is that there were these tiny little particles left at the end when all of the tissue was gone. And he called these microzyma. And these uh, little particles are basically the origin of all of these single-celled microorganisms like bacteria and fungi. And it's, it's been shown through other experiments that they exist in all of us, in all plants and animals. And, uh, for example, in humans, you can see them uh, in the red blood cells under a dark field microscopy. Um, you know, this is another thing about life and death. Medicine, when medicine takes samples from your body and looks at it under the microscope, they're always looking at dead tissue. So they take the sample of tissue and they apply chemicals to it that essentially fixes and kills the tissue. I mean, things like formaldehyde, and then they apply stains. So when you're looking at those tissues under the microscope, you, you, you can't see how they behave at all. They're completely dead. It would be like if you were an alien trying to study uh, the earth and you wanted to you know, study dogs, then you'd go and find a, a dead dog and look at it under the microscope instead of find a living dog and observe it behave uh, while it's alive. So there's another type of microscopy that was um, by used by uh, several of the uh, German um, scientists that followed uh, Béchamp and Pasteur, uh, like Enderlein and uh, Gaston Nassens, and where they could actually take a blood sample and visualize it alive under the microscope and observe how the cells behave and what happens. And so you can see in, in that type of microscopy, these little particles, uh, which uh, were called microzyma by Béchamp, they've had several names since then, uh, protids and somatids are the other two most common names used. And once they started observing these, then they basically mapped out a whole cycle where these little particles can be activated by environmental cues. So in other words, some place in your body uh, needs them for some reason, and they bud out of the red blood cells, and they change their shape, and they can form basically uh, bacteria or fungi um, in their ultimate uh, iteration going through the, the life cycle. So they can basically differentiate into these terminal species that we would see under the microscope and identify as bacteria, um, you know, even by, by conventional means. And so this is the, uh, the origin, actually, of these microorganisms. They, they come from inside of us. And like I said, they're present in any plant and animal. And it was discovered that when these are taken out of the air, like those experiments where they cause fermentation, they basically were left behind from an animal or plant that died. And they were just kind of floating around, uh, maybe looking for the next uh, host that they might settle in. And it's quite interesting that after you know your entire body decays, this is what's left are these little microzyma. They seem to be immortal that they they don't uh, perish and die the way um, that our human cells do. So the terrain medicine is sort of based on this discovery, and it looks at the role of these microorganisms in the world as the same as in your body, which is they are the nature scavengers and cleanup crew and recyclers. So when there is uh, tissue damage, they respond to come in and clean it up and help repair the area. And so they're incidental to disease, but not the cause of disease. 
And that's essentially what, uh, what terrain medicine says is that the, the soil of the body or the terrain of the body, the tissues and cells of the body, if those are damaged, then there is disease. And then a whole series of uh, things get set in motion to um, deal with that, with that uh, damage or disease. And the, the, uh, the microorganisms are, are one important uh, part of that. So, Jason, I can already tell that we're probably going to have to have Andy back because I'm looking at the list of very interesting things we have to go over, and we're still on the first bullet point. So, what I'm going to do here, Andy, is it's too I'm much gonna, detail. I'm sorry. Well, it's it's really not, and it's fine. Uh, when we have interesting guests with so much to offer, we typically do have them back. But for the sake of the first hour, I'd like to get in at least a number of topics because I'm sure people want to hear about AIDS. Do viruses cause disease? the immune system, antibiotics, microbiome. I mean, there's a whole list in front of me and we're still dealing with germ theory to try to uh, paint a picture that people can understand. So let on the germ theory, let me cut to the chase. Germ theory basically states uh, that these foreign entities, for lack of a, a better description, get into our body and they make us sick. Um, a lot of people are questioning this. Is it questionable if someone comes and says bacteria and viruses come from outside of us, get into our body and make us sick? Is that an acceptable thing for a human mind to accept? Or has that been challenged now? And there's every reason to think that we need to know a hell of a lot more before we just jump on the these things are making us sick bandwagon. Well, it's more like the the germ theory was really jumping the gun, you know, because that avenue of research was not fully uh, explored yet. So, so it was really premature and everything has been based on it because it f provided this model and it was uh, provided a extremely successful commercial strategy forward through petrochemical medicine. So we have believed this for a century now and um, people, you know, People generally don't question this until very, very recently. But if you want to look at this as a scientist going back and reviewing the papers and seeing where they lead, you would have you would have uh, given up on germ theory a long time ago. So let's just go back to words have meaning. If you see the word theory behind anything, what you're looking at is an unproven idea. I can make up an idea right now. I have this idea that we can breed pink monkeys that have pink fur. That's my pink monkey theory. And I know that's a bit absurd, but I think people understand what we're getting at. What I'm going to do here, Jason, is I'm going to skip one or two, get to the interesting points, and I'm going to kick it back over to you. So, Andy, there's this whole thing about AIDS that started years ago uh, with a doctor who started looking carefully at the AIDS testing mechanisms. By the way, for some reason, Lord only knows why, most of these videos have been pulled from the internet. And basically at the time, it caused a whole bunch of people to look at this thing we call AIDS that they thought they knew about in a whole new light thinking, wait a minute, we don't know anything about this and we need to re-examine it. And while I don't remember the exact specifics, I will try to draw from memory what started the whole, these unquestionable things are now questionable. If I recall, the test was looking at a protein and what the doctor did was demonstrated that it had no basis to walk away with an end result that this disease we call AIDS is the outcome of this test. Which, in fact, was found was that 
people had been tested on one day and found to have AIDS and tested on another and found not to. And the outcome of that line of research was that this is completely nonsensical. It is not founded in science. And this is all basically a falsehood. So let's get into your ideas. Can we talk about AIDS for a minute carefully? Yeah, absolutely. Because people will lose their damn minds if we don't thread (laughs) the needle here. (laughs) Well, you know, I think the, the HIV test is an excellent place to start because there are so many levels of obfuscation going on with this test. So first of all, let me just tell you that it's not FDA approved. Now, why the hell do we have an HIV test for one of the most important diseases of our generation? And it's not even FDA approved. All right. You don't need to say anything more. I think everyone understands. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. I'm trying to make a point here as carefully as I can, but go ahead. Well, I understand the FDA is a low bar, but it couldn't even meet that low bar. So the way that they, that Gallo, you know, who did not isolate any virus, But the way he came up with the test is that he took some human immune cells, right, the kind that are supposedly infected uh, in this illness, and he mixed them with some nasty chemicals that would put stress on them, chemical stress. He put in there hydrocortisone, okay, which is uh, a a corticosteroid. Um, It changes the, the cells at the nuclear level, how they transcribe genes, and incubated these cells. So basically put these cells under stress. And what happens when cells are under stress? They uh, in- initiate inflammation, they, uh, they change shape. They, the, some cells may undergo uh, apoptosis where it's like programmed cell death. They extrude protein fragments into the serum. So all these kinds of reactions that they have. So it's a great setup. There's all kinds of material for antibodies to bind to. And he basically just developed an antibody that binds to this kind of nasty, stressed cellular debris, and that's the HIV test. So, uh-huh. so, so anyone that is in a state of cellular stress, oxidative stress, can test positive. And there's a, at least 50 conditions that have been well characterized that are show, can show a false positive HIV test, including things like pregnancy, hepatitis, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's all very interesting for a simple reason. There are a lot of people out there today uh, saying things like inflammation is the cause of all disease. And one of the things you said there was they basically caused inflammation. But this is part of the problem with the modern world uh, that we live in. If we want to have an adult conversations about the validity of things like AIDS or viruses or other things, first of all, most of the people start to lose their damn minds if something is covered that they don't agree with, which is unfortunate. And secondarily, the censorship around all these things should let every mind know out there that when things are censored, there is a damn good reason to take a more careful look. Um, I think we'll Absolutely. leave, yeah, we'll leave AIDS there for a minute. But Jason, do you want to jump in and steer this ship somewhere meaningful? Well, I'm sure a lot of folks do want to know more about AIDS, but that's probably more of an hour two thing, I would say. Absolutely, because I know what I want to say right now. (laughs) Well, I I can certainly have a lot more to say on it as well. And maybe we'll pick up on that. But why don't we jump down to viruses in general and what the mainstream says about viruses and what you might have come across and come to conclusions of about viruses. I want to be blunt. Do viruses cause disease, Andy? (laughs) No, Uh, unless you're you're a bacteria, maybe. All right, let's fake like none of that was said. Go ahead and follow on with Jason's question. 
Well, you know, virus is another thing that you you have to look at the meaning of the word because uh, the word virus is a is, comes from the Latin, and it means a noxious or poisonous uh, substance. Okay, so it long predated this, and in fact, uh, before the notion of what we think of as a modern virus was even uh, understood, people used the term virus when they were studying disease um, as as basically the poison that caused the disease, because there was always this view that there was some poison in the air causing the disease. So they so they use that term before uh, this modern concept. But basically, what happened is that um, viruses do exist in lower organisms. So in single cell organisms like bacteria and algae and amoebas. I got to interrupt you and I'm sorry for doing so, but this is a thing I want to ask you because it comes up so often. So many of the supposed images of what is called a virus have been by image experts shown to be CGI, like so much of the space stuff we see. Are there real images of viruses, first of all? So, yeah, that's what I was getting at. So these like viruses that infect bacteria, they're called bacteriophages. And I've actually worked with these in the laboratory in, co- in college. And uh, these have been uh, seen under electron micrograph. Uh, there's lots of pictures you can find on the Internet. In fact, I have this article from the uh, University of California, San Francisco, that has some excellent uh, photos. And you can tell that they're real electron micrographs. I'd like to post those in the comments forum under this episode, um, because I can't tell you how many emails will come about what we're talking about. So absolutely go ahead. You know, one of the, one of the most prominent and, um, sharpest, uh, scientists to talk about this issue is Dr. Stefan uh, Lanka, who's a German scientist. And, and he actually started his career studying a virus that infects uh, sea algae and he isolated the virus he was able to photograph it with an electron microscope, um, and he was able to characterize it biochemically. And those are basically the scientific criteria to identify a virus. So you're saying that in the, in the, in the algae, there's a, a virus. You haven't told us whether it's a living thing or not. But what would happen, just to jump ship for a second here, if a human being ate that algae and the algae wasn't poisonous, what would become of that virus? Well, let me tell you that the virus doesn't actually cause disease in algae. It actually plays a a helpful role, like a symbiotic role, by exchanging genetic material. So um, I I think what would happen is that it would basically not not affect you at all, uh, because one, it would probably be destroyed in your gut. But even if it wasn't, it has no ability to recognize human cells. It's specifically trophic, uh, or it can only identify, you know, the the algae that it lives with. I apologize for pushing it, Shevin, but I want to get so much as I can into hour one. Um, are there other things we would call a virus that are found inside a human being that we could say are alive? <laughs> yeah. So, so it's great that you talked about the pictures because you know, no virus that allegedly causes human disease has ever been isolated and then uh, an electron micro. Uh, graph uh, or photograph has been produced of it because it's never been seen. But there are lots of pictures. Some of the pictures, like you mentioned, are completely made up CGI pictures. Like there was recently uh, a CDC thing on the current, um, you know, uh, disease that showed a CGI like this. And it was very scary looking. It was a human cell that was in blue with a bunch of these red virus particles attacking it. 
you know, look, looked very scary. But that was completely made up an artist's conception. But there are, there are other pictures of micrographs that are real. They're real pictures, but they show they don't show an isolated virus particle. What they show is different things. So they showed those cellular breakdown products that I described earlier uh, in the HIV test. Sometimes they show the inside of a cell like a human cell, and then there's a, basically a particle there. But there's no way to say that that particle is a virus. So like I saw an image like this that was in the um, endoplasmic reticulum, which is a, an organelle inside of a human cell. And that's where proteins go for what's called uh, post-translational processing. It's kind of like the finishing shop. They get little things added on, they get folded up a bit. And that's exactly what it would look like. It would look like a particle the same as they called a virus on these pictures. So there's a lot of uh, obfuscation about this. They're showing a picture of something. It's a real something, but they're just picking a little dot here and saying, oh, that's the virus without any proof. There's not a special label, you know, molecular label placed on it. Uh, There's no way it doesn't have any special shape. Like all the the, uh, ones of the bacterial viruses, the bacteriophages, and other ones of uh, small organisms like amoeba. There's uh, some viruses that infect uh, uh, amoeba. You you look at these pictures and you see they all have a unique shape, a very geometric shape, a very detailed shape, that you could identify these things as distinct entities or distinct, uh, at least a a distinct um, image uh, that you could recognize over and over again. But the pictures that are allegedly of the viruses infecting humans, there's no, no such thing at all. That's uh, kind of ironic. You know, you could get a picture of this scary looking thing, give it some royal name and then make it kind of purpley uh, for max impact. But I want to get your reaction on this. We've had other very educated medical professionals from all over the world, training from all over the world, who had been working on the idea of what would be the best way to describe a virus. And lo and behold, there was German teams apparently doing cutting edge. So what's your reaction to this? It was suggested that a better way to describe viruses would be electromagnetic vampirism um, to try to illustrate in some meaningful way how people could think about like when someone has the flu. There's a good example. So someone's clearly sick. They've got diarrhea. They're throwing up. We typically call this the flu. The idea is that this living little thing we call a virus got in them, but with the German research and the other man, who I guess I won't name um, and do him a favor, was saying is that the conditions are electromagnetic, and when the conditions, it's like a low field happens or something, and it attracts the thing that makes you sick, but the idea behind it was it would be better described as an electromagnetic thing going on. And the idea of vampirism is basically it's sucking all your energy away. What do you think about all that? Well, I think it's very interesting. And, um, you know, the idea of sort of uh, like, I think, you know, when you say vampirism, it reminds me of parasitism. And uh, there are lots of parasite disease models, right, that, that we could adapt and not just from humans, but from other organisms where the parasite can actually even change your behavior. Um, it's quite interesting. And I've, I've thought a lot about this in schizophrenia based upon uh, some work of uh, Jerry Marzinski and, and some others as well. But I, I can't really say that I'm aware of any evidence. Um, you know, like if you want to look at a disease, like let's just say the flu, 
Okay, right, because this is uh, we're told that the flu is caused by a virus. We've most of us have had personal experience with the flu, so we know you know that it's uh, it's like a bad cold that makes you achy. It's uh, it's no fun. So if there's not a virus that causes it, you know what actually causes it. And so I want to say, you know, I don't know for sure the answer to this. Um, I, I'm searching for the answer to this. I I think I I know what uh, some possibilities could be. Um, so one thing I think that actually toxic exposures can explain a lot of these, uh, acute illnesses on a small scale. Um, I think that there are possible psychological causes. Um, I've been, um, learning a lot about German new medicine lately, which, uh, really delves deep into that. And, um, I think there's some merit to that. And, there also could be that some of these things could just be about renewal, that we go through a process. Like, like I, I heard this very interesting uh, about colds uh, one time because, you know, we tend to get colds during a certain season of the year, right? And our, our bodies always go, are undergoing cycles. And some of those cycles are seasonal. Like a lot of our biological cycles are, you know, tuned to the sky clock. That's an area that I need to do more investigation about. But uh, it's clearly true. So what if we just have some kind of renewal cycle that in the beginning of the winter, you know, around around the solstice, that we um, our upper airway is uh, time to renew itself and that it initiates uh, this kind of upper respiratory infectious process as a way to clean up the damaged tissue from the year there, filtering out all the you know stuff in the air that we breathe and et cetera. Um, and it's just a renewal process. So that could simply be the cause of some of these things. That's such uh, an interesting idea because it was three years ago, I got the flu twice in January, and I've only had what I would call a flu. A very few times in my life. Um, but this is what happened when you're going through it and everything is coming out of you everywhere. It feels like your body's trying to flush out. But what I recalled, and because I was really paying at attention to it based on a lot of the research that we try to do, um, when, when I was through it and it was pretty bad getting through it, boy, did I feel renewed as I came back out of feeling sick. But my point here is, is the whole time it felt like my body was trying to just flush itself out, if you follow. Absolutely. Almost all the symptoms of an acute illness that we have are all for that purpose, right? All of the fluid that comes in, washes the stuff out, and then, you know, it makes, uh, runs out of our nose, it drips down our lungs, makes us cough, it gives us diarrhea, right? All sweating that we get with fever, all of that stuff is eliminating these toxins from our body. Right, and that's the 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 main process I think that we undergo uh, with recovery. And you know, I, like I found in in using some natural healing techniques, that if you simply uh, support that function of your body, that you recover from illness much quicker. How do you support that function of your body? Yeah, well, there's a number of ways. So um, I think the 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 best um, example that I've uh, have found um, that just works amazing is if you have a gastrointestinal type of uh, illness, an acute illness where you have you know diarrhea and vomiting. I've done this with my children several times. Uh, you take some activated charcoal, uh, about one tablespoon for an adult, and Basically, what that does is it just binds up the stuff your body's, the germs your body's dumping um, inside the, the lumen of your gut. 
And once it once it's absorbed in that charcoal, then it can't cause any more symptoms. So it's basically uh, kind of bound up and inactivated. And then if you're having that kind of an illness, you probably don't need anything to move it through your bowels because you're already having the diarrhea and uh, the hyperperistalsis. Uh, so you'll just get it out. So when I've done this several times after that charcoal, there are no more symptoms. Well, I don't know what you think you're doing with such a no-nonsense, common-sense <laughs> approach. What's that all about? Don't we need like a pharmaceutical biochemist to come in and make something we've never heard? No, I'm making a joke here. But So if you take, for an adult, you said a tablespoon yeah, of a tablespoon. Uh, activated, do you just take it with water? And by the way, I know people will probably think about this or have done this. I'm guessing that once you've done that, you know when it's come out the other end. Yeah, yes, you, you, you definitely know. Um, and you know, I mean, if you do this, there's a chance you might throw up and then it might, uh, come out that way, but, uh, it will still work. Um, but yeah, you, you just put it in a glass of water, stir it around, drink it down. And, uh, you know, when you start feeling that grit in your mouth, then stop, add some more water, stir it again, uh, because you don't want it to be too nasty, but it's really easy to do. When I give it to my kids, I add a little bit of juice in there to uh, make it more palatable. Can you go to any of these health food places and get uh, activated charcoal that's fit for human consumption? Well, you can even get it in any random local drugstore. Um, it may not be in the ideal form. Um, you know, I try to get a, an organic uh, form in a tin, but uh, but in a pinch, I had to go to the drugstore one time and they had these little capsules. So I just emptied out the capsules um, into water. I mean, it's charcoal. You can't uh, mess it up that much. Well, then let's take this a step further. What what are your ideas about using this method as a preventative or a maintenance? What if someone decided once a week I want to take a teaspoon of this? Is there a reason to do it or is there a reason not to do it? Well, um, there is definitely a reason to have ongoing cleansing. Uh, I think because, and in fact, I wanted to read, uh, I wanted to read you a quote. Um, it's not too long, but uh, but it introduces this topic because this is really the reason why we have to do so much detox right now. And this is uh, from Nancy Turner Banks, uh, who wrote an excellent book about, about AIDS. But uh, she writes, over the last 100 years, as the result of rapid industrialization combined with cartelization, and particularly during the last 50 years, we've witnessed an unprecedented event in evolutionary biology the massive toxic poisoning on an unimaginable scale of the human metabolic system, not only from industrial products, but also industrial waste and increasingly from powerful electromagnetic fields, blah, blah, blah. And I want to I add to that and from food, which is, I think, one of the main sources. And because we have this bombardment and, you know, we, we can do a lot to reduce our exposure, but we cannot eliminate it. Because, you know, things like uh, uh, chemtrails and uh, electromagnetic radiation that we, uh, we just can't avoid altogether, air pollution. Let me put a fine point on it. Uh, there's a movie that many, many people remember from the 70s called Oh God, with John Denver and George Burns playing God. There is a scene in that movie which stuck with me all the way back when I first saw it in the 70s, where God is picking up a box of cereal in a 1970s grocery store, reads the ingredients and says, it's all chemicals. You're poisoning the kids. It's terrible. That was back in the 70s. But anyhow. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, amazing. 50 years ago. And, uh, you know, we still have the same thing. 
and we get fooled over and over again, you know, like, uh, for example, people that want to be vegan to improve their health, and then they go and uh, eat all of these packaged and processed vegan foods that are uh, just filled with chemicals and poisons. It's unreal, the exposure of things we get. Uh, my wife and I now regularly, uh, every day, uh, we cold press juice, both a green version and uh, a carrot or apple version based on the Gerson method, which, by the way, just so people know, as I say it all the time, actually cured people of serious diseases, many serious diseases, on the idea that if all your cells had the proper nutrition, you would no longer be sick. But I don't know if you're ready to move forward, but I'd like to get through a few more things. So can we jump into the immune system here? Is it, yeah. uh, is it possible that the immune system that's been described to us is not really the immune system? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it really ties in uh, to this detoxification uh, uh, scheme. So the, you know, the immune system is it, once again, it fits in with that warfare paradigm that, you know, it's there to defend us. It's like our army. Um, even some of the cells are called things like natural killer cells. You know, that's, a, that's pretty scary. But really, the immune system performs a support function. And if you can, you know, look at the immune system after making a decision that germ theory is not accurate, you'll, you'll see things in a very, very different light. So the immune system does regulate when the microbes come and uh, clean up damaged tissue and when they go away. And because they are the sort of the, the foreman, like the support crew, they manage everything, they coordinate all of these big activities. And they do respond to threats. I mean, if, you, if your uh, skin is broken from trauma, right? That's a threat. And your body needs to repair itself. And the immune system is the main um, system that, that responds to those uh, situations. But the immune system also is involved in regulating the uh, toxins in your body. Actually, a great example of this would be uh, the aluminum from vaccines that there's some, some recent science on that shows how this is managed. Um, and it's quite interesting um, because the immune system ends up carrying it around as a sort of a standby passenger or an unintended passenger um, when it responds to different parts of your body uh, to an acute situation. So I think, you, you know, you really need to start looking at the immune system differently. The, the other area is an autoimmune disease. And I mean, does it really make sense that our body would attack itself? Do you, you know? <laughs> I mean, this grand design, so much complexity, and, and it works amazingly well. You know, why would it just attack itself? Don't bring common sense into this conversation, please. <laughs> well, it's just like, you know, uh, doctors wanting to remove parts of your body. Like, is there a part of your body that's really uh, extraneous and not needed? <laughs> well, is there? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know. Wait I a minute, are you telling so. me I needed I that foreskin? So. <laughs> did, did I need that foreskin? Well, you know, um, possibly if you wanted yeah, to, some feeling there. Yeah, you think? <laughs> Unreal. Now, you mentioned about autoimmune diseases. What about something like alopecia, which the mainstream blatantly calls an autoimmune disorder and makes all your hair fall out if you have the full-blown alopecia universalis? Well, um, yeah, so uh, the name of the autoimmune disease is alopecia areata. And um, so alopecia just means hair loss. And so it could be to varying degrees and, and a variety of causes. I, th I think actually one of the main causes is malnutrition with specifically uh, connective tissue malnutrition. 
So hair loss is associated with several autoimmune disorders like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. I mean, if these are actually different things, but yeah, you, you definitely, I've seen patients like that, but it's also hard to tell if did the hair loss come from the autoimmune disease or did it come from the treatment for the autoimmune disease? Because they're often using uh, the same kind of therapies they use in cancer to treat autoimmune disease. What about people who are born and then like at the age of two, let's say, or three, that just that their hair falls out? Boom. Uh, I have a friend whose son, it happened when he was around 12, I think. Wow. Yeah, I, I, uh, I've never encountered that myself. I don't uh, know that it's a very common thing, but uh, I would have to certainly, you know, look at the at a case by case. I, I definitely worked with a teenager, uh, or actually more than one, um, who pulled out their own hair um, and were essentially looked as if they were bald. And, you know, that's a, a, psych, a psychological condition that's uh, called trichotillomania. And uh, it, it, it had a purely psychological cause um, in the cases that I've been involved with that was, uh, that was reversible. So I don't know. That's an interesting, uh, interesting question. All right, Andy, we're going to wrap up hour one. There was so much more I wanted to get into hour one because it goes out everywhere. So I'm reasonably sure Jason and I are going to ask Andy back. And if for no other good reason, and there are plenty of good reasons, there's going to be a list left behind on the tail of two hours that has so many interesting things. And just let me talk about it. Antibiotics, are they deadly? The microbiome, what is it? What are the appendix? All the medicine we need is in nature. Medical errors, pharmaceuticals kill 150,000 people a year. Diabetes drugs killing people. Aluminum metals. I mean, it goes on and on. That's, that's only, that is less than half of the list we're working from. But that does bring episode 203 uh, to a close. So I'm going to ask you very quickly, Andy, uh, is there a place where people can get in touch with you if they'd like to? Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. I would encourage people uh, to email me at Andrew Kaufman, MD at Proton Mail. And uh, people can also uh, look at my uh, YouTube channel, which is under my name, Andrew Kaufman. It's called Medicamentum Authentica. All right. Uh, as people may realize, I don't put anything in the descriptions on YouTube videos other than wishing everybody the best that I can. Uh, there's a reason for that. Most of this information will end up getting posted again uh, for membership under the second hour, uh, where we don't have to be concerned with things like uh, censorship. So that's that's the first hour of 203. Uh, we're going to go into a ton of things in hour two. We're going to go back on AIDS to, to state openly what we want to. Diets for healing about meat, GMO, dairy, soy, uh, mental health, psych psychiatric drugs, schizophrenia, uh, obesity. I mean, it goes on and on. And that's on top of the list I just read you. So join us for the second hour at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W, 777radio.com for hour two. Hope to see you all there in the free speech zone. Cheers.
beast. <laughs>